So I think this develops into a series. Didn't know quite where it was going to go at the start. And it's a bit of a geography, history, Bible study. So if you like any one of those three bits, there might be something for you. Just as an introduction, if we're to work out how we are to perform as a church, we would do well to look at the first Christian church. This will show us something that they were doing in acting and functioning. And it will also teach us lessons about what they did that were good and the things that they failed in. In other words, we want to know what God wants from his church in modern day times. And we want to learn from those who were part of the first church that he instituted and learn from their strengths and their weaknesses as we build this local church today together. You'll know that the Christian was the name first applied to believers in Antioch, Acts chapter 11, verse 26. And initially, I'm sure it was a slur, but it's a lovely name, Christ followers. The church came about through persecution, as we read in the passage we looked at, and subsequent migration from the original church in Jerusalem. The church at Antioch plays a crucial role throughout the book of Acts and elsewhere. So, ask the question, where was Antioch? If I asked you, you might well say, yeah, I know exactly where it was, but if you were me, I'd be going, not sure. And of course, there are two Antiochs in the Bible, so we're talking about this one. So, anyone want to guess where it was? Modern... Yes, 300 miles north of Jerusalem, first part. What country is the modern-day country? Lebanon? Nope. Iran? Nope. Iran? Nope. Syria. Syria. In Syria, 300 miles north of Jerusalem, and it was a wicked city, perhaps only second in its <coughs> wickedness to Corinth. All the local deities were honoured there. The local shrine was dedicated to Daphne. Uh, apologies if there are any Daphnes, and I don't think we've got any. Uh, and the worship of that deity involved immoral practices. It was one of the largest cities in the Roman Empire. Had a population of around 200,000 people. It was busy, thriving, <coughs> and largely because it was located on the middle of a trade route between Egypt, Asia, Greece, Italy and Mesopotamia. In it, as you'll have gauged from the reading, if you remember hearing it, there was a mix of Jews and Gentiles, and the former were wealthy and a very thriving community. <coughs> Antioch first mentioned in the book of Acts in chapter 6, and we'll look at that. Here we find reference to Nicholas, a Gentile convert who was one of the first seven deacons in Jerusalem. If you want to turn up Acts chapter 6, we read of this in chapter 6 verse 1 to 7 and I only read it uh, there's lots more references I won't read but very applicable to us as we've just appointed new deacons so Acts chapter 6 verse 1 now in those days when the number of the disciples was multiplying there arose a complaint against the Hebrews by the Hellenists Hellenists generally speaking Greek people because their widows were neglected in the daily distribution then the twelve summoned the multitude of the disciples and said, It is not desirable that we should leave the word of God and serve tables. Therefore, brethren, seek out from amongst you seven men of good reputation, full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom, whom we may appoint over this business. 
but we will give ourselves continually to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And the saying pleased the whole multitude, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and the Holy Spirit, Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte from Antioch, whom they set before the apostles, and when they had prayed, they laid hands on them, and proof that this was God's way of doing things, the word of God spread, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests were obedient to the faith. I'm not sure I'd ever read that before and recognised that the priests were converted at that time. So, why did Antioch become a centre of Christianity? It was really a drive from two angles. Firstly, after the stoning of Stephen, many Jewish believers sought refuge elsewhere, and a lot of them set up home in Antioch. Here they naturally started to preach the gospel, but to the Jews. We read that in the passage we looked at. Secondly, believers from Cyprus and Cyrene shared the gospel with the Greek-speaking population, the Hellenists. And we see that in Acts 11, verse 20. Those from Crete and Cyrene had been present on the day of Pentecost. We go back to Acts 2, verses 9 to 11. And they had then returned to their homelands to spread the good news. So those 3,000 that were saved spread out in all sorts of places, went back to their homelands, and many of those ended up in Antioch. Um, Cyrene was a Greek, and then after that, as the Roman Empire grew, a Roman city in, someone said it earlier, Libya. Famous for Simon of Cyrene, who was the one who was forced to carry the cross for Christ, which you remember we read in Luke 23, 26. Those from Cyprus may also have been at Pentecost, not specifically mentioned in that list, but it was certainly the home of Barnabas, who we'll hear more of as we go through the talk. Antioch is a most important location in the spread of the gospel. And as we said, it's in Acts in many places and also in Galatians. So that's what it's about. It's the place we're thinking of. And I want to look at two sections. One about how they were led and then how we should be led. And then about how they were taught and how therefore we should be taught. I hope that's what it comes to you and tell me afterwards whether it makes sense. For a church to grow, it needs to be led by godly leaders. I think we stick hands up and agree that that's true. In these early stages of the worldwide Christian church, all instruction and guidance emanated from the church in Jerusalem. James was there and the other apostles. When news reached the elders in Jerusalem about the growing number of converts in Antioch, we read it in our passage. They sent Barnabas to investigate. Great choice. Huh? Oh, don't spoil the story. <laughs> so they sent him to... And in Acts 11, 23 and 24, we read, When he came and had seen the grace of God, he was glad and encouraged them all with purpose of heart that they should continue with the Lord. He was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith, and great many people were added to the Lord. But he wasn't only an encourager. I think Barnabas must have been a wonderful person, don't you? I mean, if you wanted someone to be your mate, you'd want an encourager. That was Barnabas. But he was also wise. He fairly quickly recognised that the task too much for one man. So with great discernment, insight and humility, he sought out an assistant, Philip. So in Acts 11, 25 and 26, Barnabas departed for Tarsus to seek Saul. 
And it's quite incredible in way of God's working, isn't it? Barnabas, the encourager, but not necessarily the massive preacher man who we see in all the letters, but he went and he got Paul or Saul, as it says there. Again, it surprised me. There was obviously a changeover period where he was called Saul and became Paul. And at this point, the Bible still talks <coughs> of him as Saul. And when he'd found him, he brought him back to Antioch and they preached there for a whole year and taught a great many people. So the church was growing already. From this, we learn that leaders should seek wisdom and humility. I think that's a reasonable conclusion. And also that multiple eldership is a sensible thing seems to have only come into being in our church now in recent years didn't used to be we always thought the pastor but there is multiple eldership back then in that church in antioch and it seems to be sensible indeed if you read on to chapter 13 what does it say in chapter <laughs> haven't got that far we read that simeon Manaean and lucius were also added to the leadership team so they ended up with five elders at that point so yeah what did we learn? These leaders were godly and led by the Holy Spirit. It would seem that they were motivated by care and concern for the well-being of the flock. And in that, they obviously followed the, the principles of Christ, who we remember told Peter, feed my sheep. There was a shepherd role. And if you remember back to Norman coming those two nights, he really highlighted the role of an elder to be a shepherd. It would seem that many of the issues in the, which seems to me anyway, many of the issues in the local church today arise because leaders are more interested in imposing themselves than in showing compassion, tenderness and humility that Christ showed. And these early church leaders seem to have exhibited. As a result of Peter's experience with Christ, he was able to write to the leaders of other churches in Asia Minor, we've got his letters at the back end of the New Testament, shepherd the flock of god which is among you serving as overseers not by compulsion but willingly not for dishonest gain but eagerly not as being lords over those entrusted to you but being examples to the flock and when the chief shepherd appears you will receive a crown of glory that does not fade away if you want the reference it's 1 peter 5 2 and 3. So, we haven't put an advert out for a new pastor under shepherd, but I wonder what you would expect to see in the job description. You may say, I want a great preacher. You might say, I want to be a great evangelist. But what about love for the flock shown in compassion, and particularly for the weak amongst the flock? So in the New Testament, in order to see what pastors and leaders should be like, we need only look at the Saviour, don't we? We read of him as the good shepherd. We read of him having compassion on the crowds in many examples, a couple of them, Matthew 9, 36, Luke 15, verse 20. We also read of that way in which he reacted to Simon Peter. I love Peter. And we did it, a series that's, I, don't know, I can't remember whether you were around at the time, we did a series on Peter at Sunday school. He's a man who's very, very spiritual not making a comparison here but certainly like me in the way that he blurts things out and puts his foot in it and therefore he's a human being as well as being a spiritual leader when reinstating peter what was it that christ said feed my lambs take care of my sheep feed my sheep his role in the emerging church was to pastor the new confluence love them and have compassion on them 
So since Peter was so well taught by the master himself, it shouldn't surprise us that his, he uses his teaching and his writing to the emerging churches and their leaders. As we saw, the passage about Peter points out that elders, although given the role of overseer, should exercise it in a spirit of servanthood. Again, Peter gets this from watching Christ, of whom Mark writes, For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Mark 10, 45. So Paul the Apostle recognised that as a leader, his duty was to please God, not men. We wouldn't doubt that, and that may be uncomfortable at times. But he recognises that this will inevitably have the possibility of conflict. And he was not out to provoke conflict. Indeed, he said, I daily face the pressures of my concerns for all the churches. So he loved all the churches that he had contact with and he was compassionate towards them. We've just appointed three men to the diaconate. I didn't know whether you noticed, but it was a lovely service, I think. When considering them, as with an elder, we hopefully did not primarily consider their skills, accountancy, admin, IT, or their talents, but rather their characters. And that really is true for an elder as well, I think. But it's a two-way process. It's easy to sit as part of a congregation and say, the elder needs to be this, 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 needs to be compassionate, needs to be. But 2 Corinthians, Paul says, who is equal to such a task? So the membership need to recognise that leaders are just sinful men and that they should have compassion for their leaders. It's not just a matter for the New Testament church. You often think of all the New Testament, but I don't know whether it's David or someone else said recently, lots in the Old Testament we need to learn because of how it points forward. And Ezekiel chapter 34, we learn what a leader should not be. And that's quite handy sometimes. What is it not like? And you take the implication what it should be like. These leaders were primarily interested in themselves, dominated by self-concern and self-preservation. I'll leave you to look up Ezekiel 34. They also failed to look after the weak and ignore those at risk of wandering away. In fact, they exercised leadership in a brute brutal and harsh way verse, 30, uh, verse 4 of that chapter we read the weak you have not strengthened nor have you healed those who were sick nor bound up the broken nor brought back what was driven away nor sought what was lost but with force and cruelty you have ruled them and the man like Barnabas in charge in Antioch I think we can reasonably assume that the leadership there was very different to that episode in Ezekiel so I said, we have just appointed, no, sorry. What is the role of a leader in a church? I wrote it in, so if you're wanting notes, they're not in there. The role of a leader in a church is not to dominate, but to equip the saints for works of ministry. We find that in Ephesians 4, verse 12. So it's no good saying, ah, that's the elder's job. We all have a major role in building up brothers and sisters, and we have a major role in reaching out the unsaved. The role of the leader is to equip all the saints for works of ministry. So we have appointed three deacons and the statement we made was we need to ensure continuity. I believe that that's a good biblical warrant for this to apply to elders too. In 2 Timothy 2 verse 2 we read, 
and the things you have heard from me amongst many witnesses, commit these things to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. So as Paul had chosen Timothy and taught him how to be a faithful leader, so he expects Timothy to do likewise with other men. This applies whilst an elder is in position, but I think it also applies when a minister is coming to the end of his time with the church. He should look for a seamless succession. So that was um, leading, and I hope that makes some sense. But then what about feeding? If we've chosen leaders who are shepherd-like in character, we now need to recognise that the flock needs to be fed and built up. Paul and Barnabas, we'll ask Philip, how long do they stay in Antioch? A year. So you would assume that in its early days the church was not only well led, but also well fed, that the teaching was excellent. Now what's the teaching based on? And it's pretty simple. The written word of God was an important part of the Jewish faith all through the Old Testament and must remain so today. We've seen over recent years that people will rip one bit out or another bit and generally they like to get rid of the early few chapters and as a result none of the rest makes any sense. We need to be well versed in the truths of scripture so that we can give a reason for the hope that is within us. Where does it come from? 1 Peter 3 verse 15. We also need to know our Bible well so that we can A, resist false teaching. No doubt comes up in many places, but 2 Peter 3, 17 and 18. And secondly, resist the temptations and trials of the world. However, we also need to recognise that not all verses are easy to understand and there will be differences of interpretation sometimes. And I come back to one of our favourite preachers, remembering Alistair Begg's adage, the main things are the plain things and the plain things are the main things. In other words, there are some things that we should defend at all costs and there are some things that we should not allow to cause schisms with our brothers and sisters in the faith. It's significant that Jesus himself obviously knew and preached for the Old Testament writings. It's amazing the number of times, and when we had Mike Moore here, we saw it, didn't we? The number of times he'd refer back to where Christ was looking at verse and it applied to Deuteronomy or one of the Old Testament passages. And we read many times of him attending the synagogue and preaching there. One example, Luke 4, 21. We obviously don't know everything that Paul and Barnabas preached to the church at Antioch, but we can tell from their characters, from the fact that they were already well-versed in the Old Testament scriptures from their youth, and from their contact with the apostles, that they would have preached with a breadth and with an integrity. We know that as a result of their preaching, we read it, the church grew as they taught a great many people. So as we look for a man to lead this church, we must look for not only a faithful shepherd, but a man who will faithfully teach the Old and the New Testaments with clarity, but also with balance. And I, it's my favourite word, I think. There's so often that we vary off in one direction or another and it's not balanced. A man who knows that the gospel will cause offence. That's an obvious one, isn't it? The Bible tells us that the gospel's preach, it will cause offence. But not to deliberately to go out of a way to make offence by his own words. I have a favourite book as part from my Mr Merida book and it's this one, which I think I've given to a few people. Hard to get hold of, but I think it's a brilliant book. It's called A Christian Guide to Leadership for the whole church and it doesn't just relate to church leaders as such, it's youth work, 
Sunday school, Bible studies. And there's a quote in that book that says, leaders will have opinions to put forward, but they should not be so intent on having their own way that they pass over what other people think and say. Leaders are not to be controversialists. They should avoid disagreement or argument, provided that no principles are compromised. And he quotes from 1 Timothy 3, verse 3. So we only got to look around at the world and see some churches seeing the consequences of not receiving solid Bible teaching. Indeed, when Derek was here the other night, he quoted that he was seeing people come into worship who'd left other churches because they weren't being fed. And someone mentioned it to me out in the hall the other day. I come here because I wasn't getting feeding. So we need to be well fed for a variety of reasons. Let's go back to Antioch. Uh, before Antioch, to the day of Pentecost and the following months. Peter's sermon was powerful, no doubt about that, and 3,000 people at least were converted. All of those people, having been baptised, then did what? Devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. You see, it's no good having wonderful preaching and considering it unless we don't apply it to our own lives. In the early church, God continued to add to the numbers daily. That was no coincidence, it was because the word was faithfully taught and it was also because it was then well received and pondered by the congregation. But we have to be balanced here, it's not a magic formula is it? There are numerous churches where the word is faithfully preached and yet there seems to be no growth in physical numbers. I think we can certainly say though if the word is preached well and received well, as like the Bereans who searched out whether it was true and right, there will be spiritual growth amongst the believers. And sometimes I think we look for numbers and numbers and numbers and don't look for spiritual growth in the Christians who are already in the church. As Jesus tells us, blessed are those who hear the word of God and obey it. Luke 11:28. So what are the benefits of being well fed? I think I've got three. One, we'll be able to pass the glorious good news on to future generations. We only have to look at the life of Timothy to see how important this is. He was well taught by his mother and his grandmother and would have been aware of the scriptures since he was a child to Timothy 3.15. And that should encourage us in family devotions and in taking leadership roles in youth, young people's groups. But be warned, we can only give out life-changing words if we first taken in the Bible knowledge ourselves. Secondly, what's the benefit? Salvation's a benefit. Generally only possible by being acquainted with this living word. As Paul said in 2 Timothy, the Holy Scriptures make us wise to salvation. Here we learn of forgiveness and mercy and the once for all sacrifice of the Lamb of God. Here we learn that the Holy Spirit convicts the world of guilt in regard to sin and righteousness and judgment. You get that in John 16, 8 to 11. Spurgeon, I like quoting, Philip used one of them last time, I think, when he was speaking. And Spurgeon says this, a sermon without Christ is like a loaf of bread without any flour in it. No Christ in your sermon, sir? Then go home and never preach again until you have something worth preaching. And you know, it's true, isn't it? There ought to be something of Christ in every sermon we receive. 
So, living the Christian life, thirdly, and aiming for maturity. Being found by Christ, often we say finding Christ, comes to this mixture of God's sovereignty and human responsibility. It's just the beginning of a wonderful journey. As much as we long for the peace of Christ's kingdom and heaven, and clearly that's what Kathleen is yearning for, we have to also seek for sanctification in this life. It's no good looking the part on a Sunday if we do not seek to live lives worthy of Christ the rest of the week. So we must learn to apply the preach word on a Sunday to change our actions and our character during the week. This is where the Christian life is so different to other faiths. William Nelson, who wrote a book that I've read, not this one, says the Christian faith is not a passive belief. It's not just believing dogma, but it is an active faith. So it's about growing. I remember when I saw you in the Paul and Janet's front door and it has little marks all the way up the door. And I remember with our own children, we would say, are they growing at the right rate? Well, clearly all children grow at a different rate, but it applies to the spiritual life as well. Doesn't spiritual growth be the, should be the same. We should keep a height chart effectively to see whether we're growing in the Christian faith. So this talk has covered not nearly as much as I thought it would, but I hope it might be useful in future weeks, just so that you're aware of what's coming, little forward view like you get at the cinema, in future weeks I think we need to look at worship, prayer, evangelism, the role of the Holy Spirit, unity, giving, hospitality, growing together and encouragement. Now whether that fits in one week, two weeks, three weeks, I don't know. But no doubt will provide us with not all the answers, we might not have even all the questions, but I do hope it will lead us to being united, inquiring New Testament church. And you've put your book down, but I'm just going to summarise it in case anyone went to sleep. So, the church at Antioch and the other New Testament churches give us a guide as to how we should function. Leadership in church is vitally important. Leadership is as much about character as it is about gifts. Leadership needs to be godly, firm, but empathetic and compassionate. In summary, it needs to be modelled on the leadership of Christ. Teaching in the church is vitally important. Teaching needs to be well balanced with a minister avoiding pet hobby horses. Teaching needs to focus primarily on Christ. Success in preaching is not down to the minister alone. The congregation need to apply and act on the word. Teaching should lead us to teaching the next generation, leading sinners to salvation and maturing as saints. I'll leave it to you to decide how effective we are as a church, but as my school reports used to say, could do better. <laughs>